Louisiana is full of amazing history, food, and culture. Honestly, from the Lollerie Mansion, to the Voodoo Queen Marie Laveau, to vampires in New Orleans, Louisiana has no shortage of creepy history. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends, and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true Louisiana horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. Now, as always, if you have a story from your home state that you would like to share, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I am always looking for brand new scary stories to share, and I'd love to see yours. Now, hit that like button, subscribe if you're new, and get ready for these creepy and downright strange Louisiana horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. Today's podcast is brought to you by Established Titles. You can become a lord or a lady today at EstablishedTitles.com. Now, Established Titles is a project based on a historic Scottish custom where landowners are referred to as lairds or lords and ladies in English. Established Titles allows people to buy as little as one square foot of dedicated land so they can call themselves officially a lord or lady. They are committed to planting a tree with every order, which is my personal favorite part of this. It's a fun, novel way to help preserve the picturesque woodlands and biodiversity of Scotland while supporting global afforestation efforts. It makes a great last-minute gift. We even have a couple of packs that come with adjoining plots of land so you guys can have your spots right next to each other. You could officially change your name to Lord or Lady and get it on your credit card, plane tickets, etc. You could even get it on your dating profiles. Established titles told me that the first 200 people purchasing a title pack using my link will effectively be next to my plot, within a few minutes of walking, depending on how many of you want to become a lord or a lady that is. Come join me as we build our own little swamp dweller kingdom right there in Scotland. Personally, I felt absolutely giddy when I saw that I could call myself Lord Swamp Dweller. It's a lot of fun and makes a lot of people laugh. Established Title is offering our listeners an additional 10% off their Lordship and Ladyship title packs on top of their amazing Labor Day sale. Go to EstablishedTitles.com slash Swamp Dweller to become a Lord or Lady today and get 10% off. That's EstablishedTitles.com slash Swamp Dweller to become a Lord or Lady. Hi Swamp Dweller, my name is Ryan and this isn't my story, but it's actually my brother's. He told this to me when he came home from university last Thanksgiving. This story will be told from his perspective, so here it is. For Halloween this year, my roommates and I went to a party at a cabin in the bayous of South Louisiana. We go to school down there. I was born and raised in Ohio, so the warm temperatures in the early spring and late fall are pleasant. Anyway. My roommates and I headed out to the cabin after classes. We initially expected less than 20 people to be there, but when we got there, it was packed. The tiny house was filled to the gills with people inside and out. The first few hours were mostly alcohol, weed, and sex, but when things slowed down, that's when it got weird. I stepped outside with my buddies Davion, Josh, Eli, and Eli's girlfriend Tori. Davion and Josh were smoking with my brother while Eli and Tori were chatting on the other side of the porch when they heard this strange sound. A giant splash came from the swamp. Now, alligators are common in the area, and my brother and Eli were studying herpetology at this time, and often worked with crocodiles and alligators as well as snakes, lizards, and turtles, so they just brushed it off. 
After about a minute, a loud hissing could be heard from a few yards behind the cabin in the swamp. Again, alligators hiss, and they just assumed there were a couple of them just chilling in the swamp. A few minutes later, Davion shouted that he saw a prominent figure in the swamp. Everyone came to look, and sure enough, there was something standing there about 100 yards away in the swamp. This figure was around 7 foot tall and looked to be incredibly skinny. It had what looked like to be a snout and long arms. It looked human, but the height and the bill were dead giveaways that this was no person. Josh had a flashlight and flashed the light to the figure. When we saw it, we instantly freaked the hell out. It looked to be a giant lizard standing on its hind legs. It had dark green scaly skin, spikes running down the back, and a long tail. Have you ever seen an adult green iguana? This is almost what it looked like, but way more significant and standing on its hind legs. As soon as we spotted the creature, it took nearly a second to clear the area. I have never seen anything move so fast in my entire life. We immediately ran back inside and told everyone that there was something outside in the swamp. Some people took them seriously, but the drunk idiots that were there said to chill out and that they were probably just seeing a gator or something. Either way, we all left because we weren't hanging out with the giant lizard man running around outside. On their way home, my brother said the freaking thing ran beside their car for a few seconds. When they got back, they said they would never return there again. Anyway, I just wanted to tell you guys be careful when in the southern swamps of Louisiana. Who knows what is lurking out in those bayous. My family has owned a jewelry store here in New Orleans since 1952. My grandfather opened it up after spending most of his life working on a farm outside Baton Rouge. Having saved up for years to afford the lease, he haggled with pawn shops and thrift stores, building up a fine collection of chains, brooches, and rings that he could turn a profit on. He built that business from the ground up, transforming it from a struggling, run-down old dump into one of New Orleans' most successful jewelry stores. When he retired, he handed the thing off to my dad, who he had trained up throughout his teenage years and early 20s. Then my turn came. The tradition continued. I learned how to evaluate gold and silver, checking for purity and such like. While other kids were finishing high school and going off to college, I was learning the jeweler trade. More than 50 years of hard work got poured into that place, three generations of Louisiana blood, and we were all incredibly proud of it. But we almost lost everything over 48 hours in August of 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit the city. And as it turned out, the actual hurricane was the least of our worries. Fortunately for my family, the suburb of New Orleans we lived in at the time was just above the waterline, so we didn't get much in the way of flooding out where we lived. Sure. The winds and the rain were scary, but I didn't start my own worry until I heard about the looting going on downtown, and how there was absolutely nothing in the way of law enforcement. I couldn't just sit there and watch it happen on the news, so I got in my car and headed downtown with my pistol in the passenger seat. When I reached the area where the water started accumulating, I parked my car, got out, and began slopping through the flood water towards the street where my store was on. Seeing the city I was raised in being utterly destroyed was depressing and it didn't take long before I started to see evidence of the looting. I saw a guy with about 10 pairs of jeans slung over his shoulder, wading through the water about 100 meters ahead of me. I didn't say a thing, 
not because I wasn't outraged, but because he held a small revolver up high, letting everyone know he wasn't about to be stopped. I reached my store and thanked God it had not been broken, but the inside was almost totally ruined. I set about collecting every valuable item I could, intending to take it all up to the safe on the second floor, where hopefully it would be safe from any looters. But right as I was in the middle of doing this, I heard a boat engine just outside, along with a bunch of angry-sounding voices. As soon as I turned around, I saw a masked man pointing a rifle at me through the wrought iron gate I used to lock up my store. He screamed at me to drop the pistol, saying he'd kill me if I didn't comply. I knew if I did, that would be the end of my store, but he started counting down from five like he would pull the trigger when he got to zero. So I did. I dropped my gun into the water and watched as what appeared to be a well-organized team of looters wrenched open the old iron gates with a crowbar and proceeded to break into my store. They were well-armed, well-equipped. All of them had body armor on, too, like they had seen the destruction and the chaos and just decided to take full advantage of it all. It terrified me that predators like this seemed to walk among us in broad daylight. One held a pistol to my head as the rest began smashing the glass cabinets and emptying the contents into plastic bags. I watched while they opened the entire store, but they weren't satisfied when they had taken almost everything. The guy with the pistol to my head started demanding I tell him where the rest was, that he knew I had a bunch more jewelry stashed away somewhere, along with some cash. He was right, but I lied and told him they'd emptied me. That's when he started dunking my head under water for longer and longer periods, telling me he'd sooner drown me than walk away at that point. It was pure torture. I felt like I was going to black out. So in the end, I just told him about the safe upstairs. They dragged me onto the second floor, held that gun to my head as they made me unlock the safe, then emptied the entire thing into the plastic bags they were carrying. Almost $5,000 worth of cash and jewels were gone just like that. Then, as quickly as they arrived, they had left, having wholly emptied me. I had gone downtown to protect my store and failed miserably. It was one of the most terrifying, humiliating experiences, but I'm glad I could walk away with my life. It took a while before the store was up and running again. I had to fight with insurance companies who seemed unwilling to pay out, some claiming an act of God or some other nonsense. But in the end, we didn't lose the store entirely, and we were open for business again. Although not a day goes by, I don't see that guy's face or remember how that floodwater tasted when the evil SOB almost drowned me in my own damn store. My one true passion in life has been fishing. I have a high-pressure job as a stock trader in my hometown of Philadelphia, and nothing seems to help me unwind from a stressful week like a day's worth of fishing. I think it's the combination of the serene setting, its slow, steady pace, and the fact that I'm reconnecting with nature, when most of my life is spent in a stuffy office space staring at a computer screen. But there's always been one dream fishing trip I've always wanted to go on but never really had the time to arrange and that's bow fishing down in Louisiana. I have been dying to try it since I saw a segment on the World Fishing Network. I always wanted to try some archery, so combining that with my passion for fishing seemed like the obvious choice. I had mentioned it once or twice to the wife, and being the great listener she is, she ended up arranging a trip down to the bayou for a few of my buddies and myself for my 37th birthday. We flew down to New Orleans on a Friday morning, we then spent the day hanging around Bourbon Street, drinking cocktails, and soaking up the jazz. Then after fighting off the hangovers the next day, we drove down along the Mississippi River to this little place called Buras, 
where we found ourselves in North Louisiana boat fishing charters. The guys down there were fantastic, sharing all their little tricks and techniques and all the good stuff with us to ensure we would have a lucrative trip. Then, once the sun had set, we loaded up into a boat and set off into the swamps. It was like a dream come true for me. The landscape down there is something to behold. But here's the thing. The shallow bottom boat we were on had these floodlights just below the waterline. Most fishermen will tell you this is cheating since the fish tend to be attracted to the lights. But since we were using bows and arrows, I guess it kind of evened out the odds. However, having lights on your boat like that ruins your night vision. So you can see the waters around you, but it blinds you to the darkened areas beyond. And that's what makes you feel freaking vulnerable. There could have been anything in the darkness just watching us, and you would have no idea it was there. So we're having a ball for the first hour or so, mostly just making fun of each other for missing our shots. But eventually, we start getting the hang of the whole accuracy thing. We're pulling in all kinds of black drums, redfish, and flounder, which are delicious. But I couldn't see any of the one fish I wanted to shoot, and that was an alligator gar. I had my heart set on getting myself a big 10-footer to show the guys back at the office, and I was worried the entire trip might pass before I get the chance to shoot one. But eventually, one of my buddies was looking over the side of the boat. They were looking into a brightly lit but murky water. When he calls out to me and says, Hey, there's a big old gar hiding among some reeds just a few feet away. He knew I was after one, as was everyone. So everyone got out of the birthday boy's way so I could get a clear shot on it. So I was right up on the edge of the boat with my bow and arrow in hand trying to steady myself to get a good aim at this gar. This thing was huge. I mean, it was quickly a 10-footer. The same kind of monster that I had been dreaming of getting my hands on, and I had to regulate my breathing to keep my hands from shaking too much. Only just as I start to get a steady aim on the thing, and I'm about to fire the arrow in the water, it starts to slowly creep further away from the boat, almost like this thing knew that I had my eyes on it. But I was not about to let it get away. And as dumb as this might sound, I started leaning over the edge of the boat so as not to lose it. That's when I lose my balance. I started wobbling, tipping over the ship's side before my buddies could reach out to grab me and reel me in. Bow in hand, I crash into the murky waters head first, getting soaked in the process. I can hear the guys in the boat laughing their asses off before I even resurface. And when I finally do, I admit I was laughing too. But as I look up from the water, they don't seem so cheerful anymore. They're all just looking behind me, staring at something with those looks of terror on their face. I'm like, hey guys, what's the problem? Before I looked behind me, seeing a pair of glassy red eyes glowing in the boat's lights, just before they disappeared under the water. It was an alligator, and it was massive. I started scrambling to get back on the boat, trying and failing to scale the side of it before the thing got me. All my buddies rushed to the side and tried to grab me. But the bow fishing instructor runs to the opposite side holding one of my friends and imploring them to do the same. If they didn't do that, the whole thing would have tipped over. And we would all end up in the water with this thing. Just as they get a grip on me and start dragging me upwards, I felt an intense pressure on my right foot. It was horrible. I just started screaming, It's got me! It's got me! Over and over, feeling my legs stretch from the guys dragging me up and the gator trying to drag me down. Then suddenly I'm free and I can feel the guys pull me back up into the boat. But that didn't bring me any relief, as in that moment, all I can think about is the gator has bitten off my foot. There was no pain, but I've often heard that you don't always feel pain with massive injuries because of the adrenaline-fueled moment. I'm scrambling around in the boat, looking at my leg, half expecting to see a missing foot and blood pouring out from the bottom, but to my infinite relief, I see a soaking wet sock covering my still-attached foot. 
The comfort. The pure relief I felt in that moment. I can hardly put into words. And it didn't take long to figure out that a hangover had saved my life. Since I was feeling so rough that morning, I hadn't bothered to tie my boots up all that tight, giving them enough slack to allow the gator to pull it straight off of my foot. It was, without a single doubt, the most terrifying moment of my entire life. Seeing the thing's eyes practically glowing in the floodlights of the boat put the absolute fear of God into me, and I know how lucky I am that I could walk away from that situation with all of my limbs still attached. I could just have quickly bled to death lying on the floor of that boat, hundreds of miles away from my wife and kids, while my buddies looked on helplessly. We took a fair amount out of the swamp that night, and I suppose it was only fitting that the swamps took something back. I didn't manage to catch the gar I'd been lusting after in the end, but that was okay by me, I guess. I'm just quick to remind myself that there are real-life monsters out there, things that look like they're from land before time, just watching and waiting for a dumb person like me to slip up, figuratively, or in my case, literally. Hey everyone, my name is Troy and I live with my wife and daughter in the Gentilly neighborhood of New Orleans. My wife and I are Creole, and we are proud of that. We have a rich and diverse heritage that we can trace back for generations. We were both born and raised in New Orleans, our home, and neither of us would rather live anywhere else. But although this city is nicknamed the Big Easy, living here is anything but. From the heat and humidity to the gators and hurricanes, I think the sense of community down here has been forged out of suffering. And back in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit, we suffered. So in 2005, my family lived in this sturdy, red-brick, two-story house here in Gentilly. I guess it is my fault that we went through what we did because even after we got the hurricane warnings, I decided to keep us there. We had it for at least four or five years then, and never once had it flooded before, no matter how crazy the storms got. On top of that, the roof had almost an inch of waterproofed plywood underneath it, and I laid all the shingle with my own two hands. I was proud of my work and put a lot of time into it. Maybe it was my pride getting in the way, but I reckoned we'd be all right. And at first we were okay. My wife and I figured it was just another regular old hurricane, if you can call them that. But then we got the bad news that the levees had broken, and we only just then realized what we were actually in for. The water came in fast, real fast. It flowed down the street we lived on like a river and leaked into our house wherever it could. We grabbed all kinds of things we didn't want to lose in the ground floor and then headed upstairs to safety. Somehow, I got into my head that it would just stop there. But I remember how scared my wife got as the water started climbing the stairs, step by step. We watched them disappear one by one until not long after it was soaking in the carpet on the second floor. The house had never flooded before, not even once, and then, here we are, feeling like we had no more than an hour before the place would be underwater entirely. Our daughter was young at the time, just out of diapers, so you can imagine how scared we were, and how her crying made everything else much tenser. That's when all the power went out. My wife and I saw this big flash of light outside and heard these scary sounding sparks from outside. But it wasn't any lightning. It was from the transformers down the block as they shorted and gave out. After that, we were in darkness. I was hauling as many of our valuables and essentials as possible into the attic of our house while my wife tried to keep the baby calm. She was hushing her, singing her little songs, but the baby was wailing something fierce. She knew something was wrong, and she wasn't too proud to show it. When it was up to our waist on the second floor, we were all starting to panic. 
but suddenly, it just stopped. We weren't sure it had. First, I just figured it may have slowed down, but was still rising. But sure enough, it had finally stopped, and I swear I could have danced for joy. Almost the whole house was ruined, but if the water stayed there, we wouldn't drown, and to me, that was something worth celebrating. It was about midnight when the water stopped rising, and we were in total darkness, only able to see by our flashlight. Our bedroom had a balcony in it, so I went out there to look at the street outside. It was like a river out there, just all this rushing water flowing down the road, and it was filthy. It had this oily black layer on the surface, and trash was everywhere. All kinds of things floated past me. Anything that could flow out of people's houses was bobbing on the surface. It was a vision of utter destruction, but I'll never forget the noises coming from the other people's homes. All these banging sounds coming from people's roofs where they were trying to break out of their attics. It was haunting. Like all these houses had been turned into coffins and the people inside had been buried alive. Just this horrible booming sound that echoed all around our neighborhood. And you couldn't tell exactly where it was coming from either. The water seemed to create these echoes or something sending the sounds every which way until it seemed like the entire city was all playing drums. I'll never forget what that sounded like. I told my wife to take the kid up into the attic to get some sleep, but I'm not sure she slept a wink that night. Around noon the next day, a boat full of guys wearing uniforms came along and hitched themselves to our balcony railings. I thought we were saved, that everything would be okay. They drove that boat to a nearby overpass where they had ferried about a good half of the neighborhood. About two or three hundred scared, exhausted people were already there, just waiting to be told what to do next. But once we got there, we realized how bad the situation was. Nobody had any food with them, no water or bedding either. But we all just guessed that someone would come along with the supplies we needed. There was no way the government would just leave us here to die, right? It makes me angry just writing that, knowing what I do now. But they did. They just left us to rot, forgetting about us. And that's when things started to get wrong. I mean, very bad. After one night up on that overpass, the sense of community began to fall apart once people realized we had just been abandoned. It got tribal, brutal even. People were taking food and money from those who couldn't defend themselves appropriately. Those folks had no shame. They didn't even bother to cover their faces. Like common bandits, they just felt entitled to other people's stuff. Not a hint of guilt about them. What little food or water the group had was all gone by the second night. In the following day, people started trying to escape the overpass on whatever was floating by. I'm talking wheelbarrows, those little plastic swimming pools, anything that came by that looked like it might take them somewhere away from that overpass. People were getting desperate by that point, and were getting mean as well. Luckily, I had the foresight to keep my cell phone dry and charged, so the whole time we had been up on that overpass, I had kept in touch with a cousin of mine who lived uptown. Apparently, they didn't get any flooding but still had running water, still had power, the works. The only trouble was that the water was so intense at the end of the overpass, my wife wasn't a strong swimmer and forget about the baby. So, swimming was totally out of the question. We were trapped there, stuck on that overpass as the group we were with became more and more fractured, aggressive, and paranoid of each other. These mean folks accused people of hiding food or water. Fights were breaking out. Kids were crying. It was just awful. The third morning we were up there, something terrible happened. Some kid is messing around on the overpass railings, and I wonder where the kid's parents are to stop him from doing something so dumb. Then the kid slips. People screamed and ran to the edge and so did I. 
It must have been a 50 or 60 foot drop into the water. I mean, it was a hell of a long way. We were all expecting this kid to resurface so we could tell him where to swim, but no one comes up. He disappears under the water, and not a soul did anything to try and help. I only realized later on, after critical thinking, that the water wasn't even all that deep, and at that speed the kid fell, he would have smashed into the concrete under the water, maybe even head first from how he fell. We watched a kid die that morning, and people were so hungry, thirsty, and tired that they almost acted like it didn't even mean a thing. Then, I decided I had to get my family out of there before things got worse. That's when I had an idea. You see, this guy on the other side of the overpass from us had been sleeping on this inflatable pool thing. The bandits in the group had tried to take him off it at one point, and he had fought them off something fierce. But I figured if I asked him real nice and told him about my baby, he might just let me use it so I can get out of there. I walk across the group to him and he gives me this look like, leave me the hell alone. But I started explaining about my kid, how she hadn't any food or water, and God knows how long, and that if she didn't get some soon she might die. He looks like he doesn't believe me until I point across the overpass to where we were sitting. Then the look on his face softens, and he gives me that pool lounger without a word, just straight up gives it to me. So as discreetly as I can, as not to let the bandit see us leaving, I take my family down to the water's edge, put the pool lounger in, and I start wading out until I'm neck deep in the filthy flood water. My wife and kid were whimpering and crying, wanting to return to the overpass because they were so scared. But I told them that was not happening. That we were going to get out of here. It was a bad scene up there, and it was better to make our chances out here. I wasn't going to be around when that group imploded. After about two or three hours of pushing that pool lounger in the direction of uptown, I'm exhausted, and our pace has slowed down a lot. Suddenly, I feel the lounger snag on something in the water. Now, you must appreciate that because it was so dirty and oily, Neither my wife nor I could see what it was. As I said, I was exhausted, so I asked my wife to try and move it out of the way. But when she did, the thing rolled out of the water and she saw what it was. It was a dead guy. This old dude who probably couldn't swim so well and looked horrifying. His eyes were all milky white. His mouth was wide open and full of water. His face was swollen and purple. He looks like a straight-up monster. And my wife and kid, they start hollering up a storm on the lounger, begging me to get us out of there. I had to physically move this dead body out of the way of the lounger, grabbing onto this guy's arm and feeling it squish in my hands as I dragged him away. The smell of the body was horrific, and I was gagging and retching while my wife was hysterical on the lounger. I had to yell for her to stay calm, screaming at her to get her head straight. I never shouted at my wife, but I was terrified she'd have a panic attack or something and fall off the lounger with our baby in her arms. But she does, for the sake of our baby, she starts breathing right and about an hour or so later, the water begins shrinking a little, and we finally make it to my cousin's place. We stayed there for about a week, living off my cousin's generosity until we could finally get evacuated to a FEMA camp in North Carolina. They were nice to us, but many folks felt terrible that we had been left alone for so long. I hate to get all political about this, but the experience changed my thoughts about the government. I get that no one expected Katrina to be that bad. I do. I was just as surprised as anyone else that the levees broke after being so good for so long. But what the hell are we paying all this tax money for if they aren't going to use it to help us when we need it? We pay them so they can look after us. Not all the time, but sure as hell during an emergency like that. I hope that we learned enough from that whole horrible experience to be able to deal with it better in the future. And I pray that we do because I'm not sure how New Orleans could have ever survived something like this. And if it ever happens again, I don't think it will. As much as I love that place, 
Katrina showed me something. That community is fragile, and it won't take much for it to unravel. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true Louisiana horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. Some of these stories were pretty gruesome, so YouTube's going to try to suppress it. The more likes that this video gets, the more they promote it in the algorithm, and that helps the swamp grow and is very much appreciated. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to give us a 5-star rating over there as it helps me grow on those platforms, and I very much appreciate that as well. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, whether it's from Louisiana or your own home state, I'd love to see it. Send it in at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. If you're new to the swamp and haven't joined us yet, why not hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications? I upload videos almost every single day on all things natural and supernatural. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you'd like to support The Swamp outside of that, maybe check out the merch store. I've got t-shirts, hoodies, hats, and more. I'd love to see you guys wearing some cool Swamp threads. I'd love to know in the comments what story was your favorite and what future topics you think I should cover. I'm always looking to do new things. Be sure to join me over on Twitch, Instagram, Discord, and Twitter, and I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.